0: Welcome to What Christians Should Know, hosted by Dr. Elijah Sadoffel. This podcast equips you with clarity and meaningful answers about God, the Bible, and your Christian life. Now, here's Dr. Sadoffel. Okay. Good morning, class. I would invite everyone to turn to Romans chapter 1, verses 3 to 4. We will pray and then get started. All right, let's stand to pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you in the Holy Spirit through our precious Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We thank you for the opportunity as always to meditate on and study your word, but lean upon your light and your understanding to lead, guide, and to illuminate us that our natural ears may not only hear and listen to your words, But you will therein implant that truth in the soil that you have gone ahead to prepare for us in our souls, that that word may bear fruit and be fruitful for decades and decades to come. In the name of our precious Lord, we pray, amen. So today we're going to be focusing on Romans 1, verses 3 and 4. Those two verses talk about the gospel. Verse 3 says, the gospel is concerning his son, Jesus, who was born of a descendant of David, according to the flesh, who was declared the son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now before we move forward, there were two issues from last week I wanted to clarify. Last time, we clarified core doctrine of the Christian faith number four, which is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We talked about what the resurrection is, why the resurrection matters. But, in the Bible, resurrections had happened before Jesus Christ resurrected. As for example, in the book of 1 Kings, Elijah resurrects a widow's son. In the Gospels, Jarius' daughter is brought back, and Lazarus is also brought back. So now here's my question to the class. If resurrections happened before Jesus Christ resurrects, then what makes the resurrection of Christ so special. Why is the resurrection of Jesus Christ a core doctrine of the Christian faith?
1: Because he doesn't die again after he's resurrected from the dead he say
0: die in his Excellent. Essentially, the resurrection of Christ is radically different than every other resurrection before it. Why? Everyone prior to Christ who was resurrected did what? They died. But Christ, as Romans 8.29 says, he is now the firstborn of many brethren, meaning after he resurrects the, the fleshly body of Jesus Christ is now imperishable never to die again. But there's still more to it. Why is the resurrection of Christ so radically important? So in the prior resurrections, it was the power of God in all cases that brought someone back to life. Now let's think about this for a second. Who brought Jesus back from the dead? The answer is, God did. And all throughout the scriptures, there are Trinitarian references that all three persons in the Godhead played a part in the resurrection of Christ. So God brought Jesus back from the dead. Scripture references, Romans 6-4, Galatians 1-1, John 2-13, 1 Peter three eighteen. So in all cases of resurrection... It is God who brings someone back to life. But let's zoom out, let's think about this. All throughout Christ's life, what does he say over and over and over again? I am God. So either Jesus is God and is telling the truth or he's Looney Tunes and is a blasphemer. Would God bring back from the dead a Looney Tunes blasphemer? The answer is no. So the fact that God brings God back from the dead, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is not only in its nature radically different than anything that happened before, it also validates everything that Christ said in his public ministry. There's only one person who resurrected who said, I am God, and that is Jesus Christ. Basis of what they believe today. I mean, the first in the Bible says to this day, they still believe it. Well, the Jewish conception of Jews never deny of the three great monotheistic faiths in the world: Christianity, Judaism, Islam. Everyone has something to say about Christ, right? Christianity gets it right. Christianity says Jesus is God, he died on a cross, he resurrected. Judaism says Jesus was a great teacher who died on a cross but did not come back from the dead. Islam says Jesus was a prophet who never actually died on the cross. But the the other um, part to answer your question is that the reason why the Jews don't believe in Jesus as the Messiah is that historically their perception of Messiah was someone political, who, who would now liberate the Jews from Roman rule and now establish an earthly kingdom on earth. Right, they, they thought he'd be more like a military commander Right. Like a general. They thought he would predominantly serve an earthly natural purpose for a natural people with a, a, a natural geographic kingdom. Okay, so that's the resurrection. Yes, question. Sure. So the, the scripture references that talk about all three members of the Godhead playing a role in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This isn't all of them. This is just a sample. Romans 6.4. Romans 6.4. Galatians 1.1. 1, 1. Galatians 1.1. 1, 1. John 2.18. John 2.18. And 1 Peter 3.18. Yes? If there's no resurrection, there's no Christianity. Right. Exactly. <clears throat> if there is no resurrection, then our faith is in vain.
1: Also, then the Lord Jesus say, nobody takes my life from me, I, I lay down on myself, I have the power to lay it down, I have the power to take it. Up.
0: Yes. So essentially, although we say all the time, that Jesus Christ was crucified by the Romans through the Jews, at the end of the day, that was still all according to God's plan because the Jews and the Romans could not crucify him unless God had permissively allowed it. Okay, the other thing that I I picked up on uh, considering the questions that were asked at the end of last week's session... Is wrapping our minds around the essence of Christ, fully God and fully man in one person. So I'm gonna make sure we, we have a crystal clear clarity about that here today. Now I'm gonna take the long way around, okay? So I'm gonna take a little detour. You're gonna ask, what is he doing? What is he talking about? But trust me, I'm gonna come back around, okay? So here's the question I have. Do people who are born again, people who are regenerated, do they have one nature or two?
1: That's a good question.
0: (laughs) Are people who are born again, I mean people who are legitimately Holy Spirit regenerated, there's no gray area, are people who are born again, do they have one nature or two? Or three? Or four? Or five? Let's paint a picture. You're driving in a car. You have your, your child, or even better yet, your grandchild in the back seat. Right? You're driving to something important like a, a wedding or a, a graduation something, right? You're on the highway, you have your seatbelt on, you're driving responsibly, dr- you're driving the speed limit. You see someone next to you who has their hand in their phone, they're chatting and texting. The music is blasting, they are not paying any attention at all, right? They are clearly in the wrong. And they cut you off. And in cutting you off, they hit the front of your car and now both of your cars have to swerve to the side. Now, thank goodness the cars are damaged but no one on the inside is hurt. You're okay and more importantly, your grandchild is okay. Now, you get out of that car and there's a side of you we're being real now, right? We're being real. We're not going to pretend. There's a side of you that wants to tell this person exactly how you feel. You don't want to, you don't want to use holy, sanctified words. You want to tell them exactly what they were doing was wrong. But then there's another side of you and that other side of you there's a whisper in your ear that says this person possibly is lost this person possibly is not saved and how you now respond to that person could potentially set them on a course by god's grace to know jesus christ here's what i'm illustrating with a real life everyday example there are two things going on. There's one side of you that wants to defend itself and do what feels good in the moment. It wants to respond viscerally and emotionally. There's now another side of you that wants to, acts, that wants to act purposefully for the spiritual benefit. Of someone else one side of you wants to destroy them the other side of you actually wants to show genuine biblical love so I asked the class is someone who is born again do they have one answer one nature or two and the answer is two we have a nature That the difference between someone who is regenerated and someone who is not. Someone who is unregenerated, someone who is lost, has one nature. That is the sinful, fleshly, carnal nature where I am God. Someone who is now regenerated has two natures. They have a fleshly carnal nature and a spiritual nature. The fleshly nature does whatever it wants to do. The spiritual nature now does what God wills. When you have a desire to sin, that's not the Holy Spirit. When you have a desire to do what feels good, that is not a Holy Spirit-infused nature. That's the fleshly nature. When you want to study the Word, when you want to pray, when you want to praise, when you want to override your natural emotions and act in someone else's benefit, that is now the spiritual nature working. The Christian life, then, is a conflict of two natures where's the biblical proof for this in the book of Romans in Romans chapter 7 verses 14 to 25 in Romans chapter 7 verses 14 to 25 where the apostle Paul talks about the conflict of two natures in other words the christian life is a war Romans 7:15 this is Paul speaking and he's using present tense language in greek For what I am doing, I do not understand. For I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing I hate. Verse 22. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin which is in my members." In plain English, someone who is regenerated, born again, has a new spirit. And Jesus tells Nicodemus in John 3.3, unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. When someone is now born again, what's born is a spiritual nature. But your fleshly body, everything else doesn't die, it still exists. And now you have the conflict of two natures. So now that we're clear, someone who's regenerated has two natures in one person. Two natures in one person. You have one person, but now you have these two different natures. This analogy now is not neat and perfect, but that's now going to give us some insight into understanding the fact that in the God-man, Jesus Christ... You have a divine nature and a human nature. Two different natures in one person, where those natures maintain their essences There's no mixing, there's no intermingling. You have a divine nature and a human nature. The analogy is not perfect, but in the same way that you and I have two natures, so does Christ. One divine and one human, both in the same person, and therefore not separate, both in the same person, but also distinct. Now, wrestling with the idea of there being two natures in Christ, is not anything new. It's actually really, 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 really old. There was a council that convened in the year 451 A.D. Called the you don't have to, It's not important to remember the name or the date, just the general idea. The Council of Chalcedon in the year 451 A.D. Why did the council meet? Because at the time, there was an idea circulating called monophysitism, monos one physis nature, monophysitism. And what monophysitism said was that Christ was one person who had one nature. It was a meshing, it was an intermingling of divine and human. Now, someone tell me, if Jesus only has one nature, how is that relevant? I mean, so what? How does that apply to us?
1: Because if only had one nature, and that nature wasn't good.
0: Exactly. So, and there's actually more to it. If you have one person, Jesus, who only has one nature, which in some way, shape, or form is a meshing, is the intermingling of divine and human. Now you don't really have a man. And if you don't really have a man, you don't really have someone who can die. And you don't really have someone who can now atone on the cross for sin. Because God can't die. But even more than that, if the if the divine and human nature are mixed up, that also means Jesus not only, not only it, it, Jesus is not only not really human, he's not God as well. So that now means the one in whom we have faith is a not God. Now we're committing heresy. And someone who is not God cannot mediate between God and and man so to combat monophysitism what the council of chalcedon did is they adopted the chalcedonian creed and the chalcedonian creed now expresses language that clarifies for us the dual natures of christ you have a divine nature and a human nature in one person. Here's the creed verbatim. You don't have to memorize this, just listen to the words to get the idea. Therefore, following the Holy Fathers, we all with one accord teach men to acknowledge one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, at once complete in Godhead and complete in manhood. Truly God and truly man, consisting also of a reasonable soul and body, of one substance with the Father as regards to his Godhead, and at the same time of one substance with us as regards his manhood. Like us in all respects, apart from sin, as regards his Godhead, begotten of the Father before the ages, but yet as regards his manhood, begotten for us men and for our salvation. Of Mary the Virgin, the God-bearer. Here's the important point. One and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, recognized in two natures, without confusion, without change, without division, without separation, the distinction of natures being in no way annulled by the union, but rather the characteristics of each nature being preserved and coming together to form one person and subsistence. That is now you have a divine nature and human nature In one person and when our senior pastor went over the Westminster confession last year similar language is used in that confession in chapter 8 verse 2 so now now that we have the heavy theological understanding let's now make this plain so to answer all the questions from last time you now have fully God fully man two natures in one person so what does the, the human nature do Everything that humans do. So now when Jesus prays and is not privy to the will of the Father who is praying, the human side, when Jesus gets sad, when Jesus gets weary, when, when Jesus grows from a little baby to a grown man, that is all manifestations of the human side. So when things like that happen in the Bible where Jesus is now serving as an example to us and is subject to all of the normal limitations of humanity, that's an expression of his human nature. Any questions on that? Good. So now we will finish up Romans 1, verse 4. So Romans 1, 4. Jesus, who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Who is our? Our is the church. He's not one man. He's not one woman's individual Lord. Christ is Lord of the uh, entire church. And when Paul uses the term Lord here, The Greek word is kurios, which is a title that means the supreme ruler or the supreme monarch. Up until this point in Romans, Paul uses many names to refer to Christ. He says Jesus. He says Christ. He says Son of David. He says Son of God. But now he uses the term Lord. And this is a big deal because this word kurios... Is the same word that when the Old Testament is translated from Hebrew to Greek the Greek word that is used to refer to Yahweh the personal name of the God of the Old Testament which is it's all in the same Paul the Greeks use the word kurios so Paul is now not only identifying Jesus as the son of God the son of David He's also labeling him Yahweh. And this was a radical label because back then in the Roman era, people would call Caesar as Curios, or they would refer to other figureheads on earth as the supreme power. But Christians now would refuse to call anyone else other than Christ Lord or Curios. This is why in the first century, Christians were regarded as atheists, because it was normal back then to worship a multiplicity of gods. So when you have a Christian now basically saying, Christ and Christ alone is Lord, Christ and Christ alone is Kurios, the world at the time did not understand. It didn't compute in their minds that there is one and only one God, whose name is Jesus Christ. So Paul not only tells us in these, four, in these first four verses that what the gospel is concerning Jesus, Jesus is not only our Savior, but he's also our Lord. Because guess what, church? G- if Jesus is not your Lord, he can't save you. As I've preached before, if I knock on your door, I can't say it's Elijah Sadaful, and you say, Elijah, come in, Sadaful stay out. Jesus is Savior and Lord, and in order for him to save you, he is also your Lord. Not just Lord on Sunday, but he's our Lord intellectually, morally, emotionally, vocationally, politically, everything. Jesus Christ, our Lord. And the last thing I'll say is this. Paul uses the phrase in verse number four, according to the spirit of holiness. Now I'm not going to make a firm call on this because there's some debate in and amongst Bible scholars. Some people debate what does this phrase, according to the spirit of holiness, actually mean? And I think the best explanation is Martin Lloyd Jones' explanation, where he says Paul is giving us a contrast In in chapter 1, verse 3, in chapter 1, verse 4. In chapter 1, verse 3, he says that Jesus is a man concerning his son who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh. Contrast now with the divine nature in verse 4 where he says according to the spirit of holiness. Some scholars think Spirit of Holiness refers to the Holy Spirit but this this specific term Spirit of Holiness is never used anywhere else in the Bible to refer to the Holy Spirit. So what Paul is actually saying is that he's making a contrast between the fleshly nature and the spiritual nature and that spiritual nature is holy because Christ is God. Another way of saying it is this Jesus has an existence in the flesh, and he has one in the spirit, and that existence in the spirit is holy because Christ is God. So that will conclude Romans 1, verse 4, and I'll stop there and ask if there are any questions. All right,
1: I'll turn back, the body is dead
0: because of sin. Right. So the question is when the, when the Bible says the body is now dead because of sin, what does that mean? It essentially means that sin now or the fleshly nature does not reign. So, with one nature, without being regenerated, a person is essentially a slave to their fleshly nature. Where their um, impulses their their drives are almost animalistic they obey the sin nature that tells he or she what to do but now when you are regenerated and now you have a fleshly and a spiritual nature who is now lord who is now kurios christus and by the application of his redemption accomplished for us on the cross our new king is now Christ, so now sin does not reign, where we now have the spiritual ability to resist the fleshly carnal impulses and pursue holiness, which is a a lifelong um, growth process. Hence, after we are justified or declared righteous in God's eyes, now we have the lifelong process of sanctification, becoming more and more and more holy. So short answer, when when it says, let not the body reign, that means now sin is not king, Christ is. He gives us marching orders, not the lust of the flesh.
1: Now that I understand. It's that I'm looking at the human side, the aches and the pains are subject to disease, you know, um, and subject to death, too. Right. Um, so there is a death process going on in the Bible, it's not only spiritual nature, but also physical,
0: right? Correct. And remember, the reason why our bodies decay, the reason, in God's eyes, death was never normal, right? right? Bodily decay was never, no- was never normal. When Adam and Eve were made in the garden, God's original plan was perfection. Right. Now that sin enters into the picture, that's what warps and corrupts everything death in god's eyes was never normal the reason why this, um the chain of life ends in death ultimately is because of sin the reason why we have warped dna is because of sin the reason why bodies break down ultimately comes down to sin it has warped and corrupted god's perfect creation
1: because we have sin, but sin, by its very nature, leads to decay and destruction
0: and death. Correct. It can do nothing else. Sin is destructive and consumptive. The only thing that makes sense about sin is that it doesn't make sense. And when you look at sin, it, it's illogical. Because essentially, a creature is now saying, I'm going to do that which is contrary to the master of the universe. And, and what feels good, what they want to do, invariably, no matter how you cut it, ends in death and eternal condemnation. When you think about it like that, it doesn't make any sense. But because sin is so warped, Because sin corrupts our minds and our drives and our desires, now you have someone mucking around in the darkness for their entire life, and the only thing that sin merits them is hell. Doesn't make any sense. Who would ever voluntarily sign up for hell? No one, but that's what sin is. Sin is essentially someone saying, God, I don't want you. I'm going to do what I want to do. And the end result is illogical. Yes. So at the end of the day, there are some things in the Christian walk you can fight about. Some stuff, it's not worth it. Now at the end of the day, if someone is convinced that Sunday is not the Sabbath, okay. Because technically speaking, the Bible, remember, the Bible was written before our modern Roman calendar, right? So the Bible technically never says Sunday is the Sabbath. It says the seventh day is the Sabbath. So if someone, in my personal perspective, refuses to let go of the idea that some day other than Sunday is the Sabbath, okay. But will we change when we celebrate the Sabbath in this church? We wouldn't. And what's more important is to make sure that person has a biblical understanding of what the Sabbath is. It's essentially, man was made on the sixth day, God rested on the seventh day. It's meant in time to engrave in our minds, we were made for something bigger than ourselves. That is the glory of God. So if they're the ones who are spending their Sabbath day shopping or entertaining themselves or whatever that's where the root of the problem lies having a proper understanding of what the sabbath is as opposed to getting into wrestling matches over if it's saturday or sunday <laughs> precious lord it is clear that we are people with two natures one fleshly one divine we entreat you now spirit to sanctify us to grow our spiritual hearts to grow our spiritual desires so the lights that we reflect the world at large will not be dim but bright that those who are around us shall see your glory and behold the beauty and splendor, Lord Jesus, that is you, the center of everything, the most precious treasure in the universe. We thank you for your word and entreat you to care for and nurture the seed that you have planted today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.